Welcome to Preaching to Birds and Cats. This homily reflects on the texts for the Epiphany and the second Sunday of Christmas in the Revised Common Lectionary, Year A. Hey friends, grace and peace to you from God our Creator and Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of creation. Up front, I need to say that Epiphany feels heavy this year with wars and rumors of wars, with natural and human-made disasters threatening to consume entire landscapes, with stolen babies in cages, and with the persecution of our Jewish neighbors. It's heavy, and I suppose that makes it not so very different from that moment in human history 2,000 years ago when the Holy Family received those wise ones as guests. And then they fled to Egypt to escape a maniacal tyrant. It's similar. And there's an obligation, I feel, as a preacher of the gospel to set aside the wonder of the star and the meaning of the gifts and instead lean into the message that we need to hear, one that speaks into our political circumstances today, a message about civil disobedience and about seeing refugees as the holy family, and about going home by another way. Luckily, other preachers, gifted, prophetic people, are putting that message out there, and I commend their justice-minded posts and reflections to you. Look for links on the podcast webpage. For me, Epiphany is a high point in the liturgical year and one that usually draws me to reconnect with my own sense of awe because I spend a lot of time imagining the wonder and curiosity and courage that brought the Magi from the East to their knees at the sight of a child who wasn't found in a palace after all, but in poverty. Wonder and awe those experiences we have of our Creator somewhere out beyond our human understanding. Wonder and awe are the surest things to fan the flame of my own faith. And they're hard to feel when I am weighted down with the anxiety that comes with feeling like I just understand too many things about the state of the world. I'm grateful, therefore, for this emerging commitment that I have to you, dear listener, whoever you are, because it's pushing me to hold all the grief and fear that I feel for the living beings in Australia and in Iran and in synagogues, churches, and mosques everywhere, to hold all of that while I also turn an inward eye toward these texts and toward that ancient star. For your sake, and because loving friends have read beautiful recordings of this week's scriptures, for that I'm going to do my best to make good on my intention to keep preaching from the book of creation, to explore the deepest roots of the incarnation in this gospel story and in my story too. So thanks for hearing me into wonder, friends. We are, as Walker Percy wrote, here to hand one another along. The two things that shine for me in the Epiphany story this year are 
creation's appearances as guide and as gift. My two most memorable experiences of wonder and awe have to do with rocks and stars, both of which feature in the story of Epiphany. One is a gift, and the other is a guide. As a kid, I wanted to be an astronomer and maybe an astronaut, and so the idea that the three kings might also have been scholars of the stars gave me an extra appreciation for their role in the Christmas story. When I was in high school, shortly after my first stint at space camp, the Hubble Space Telescope was launched into orbit. All of us nerd kids, we were sorely disappointed and a little embarrassed for NASA when we learned that the telescope's mirror was fatally flawed. Still, I can remember the first fuzzy images of nebulae and galaxies and stars showing up in magazines. And then, in late summer before my junior year of high school, someone published the first ever image of a supernova, which had been colored by hand according to one astronomer's scientific imagination. It was nothing more than a handful of pixels, a a dot inside a circle. But my teenage heart just about stopped at the sight of it. I was seeing the image of the death of a star and the birth of something completely new. The school library started to spin around me. Folks who like to wonder about these things figure that the likeliest candidate for the cosmological role of the Star of Bethlehem is probably a supernova. There are other ancient records of exploding stars that appeared suddenly and remained in the sky for months. I love that the Chinese astronomers called these guest stars. In godly play with children, we call it the wild star. Whatever we call it, in the story of the Nativity, there was a star, a star that participated in the incarnation of Christ. The story of the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem may seem so small, confined to first century Palestine at its very smallest, or to this planet at its most expansive, but there is a theology, one called deep incarnation, that says that the story of the nativity fills the entire cosmos. Deep incarnation draws to our attention that in taking on flesh, in becoming the creation, our creator participates in the life of matter in a new way. In Jesus Christ, the Logos becomes a body, made of cells, made of molecules, made of atoms. When we say that the word became flesh, deep incarnation means that God took on stardust. God took on the dance of utter interrelatedness with us and all things, clinging to his mother, thirsting for water, longing for warmth, hungering for bread, which is basically just sunlight that we can eat. 
deep incarnation makes a meaningful place for the star that was the star of Bethlehem in God's project of redemption. We recognize that star as present in the pattern through which all things came into being. Like Christ incarnate, the star is made of matter and of energy. Like Christ incarnate, it is a guest in our world. Like Christ incarnate, the star points the way closer to God. Like Christ incarnate, a star is born, lives, and dies. And if we say that it was a supernova, then, like Christ, its death comes just in time to serve the story of salvation. The whole idea calls to mind Madeline Lengel's mentor character from A Wrinkle in Time, Mrs. Who, who tells Meg and Charles Wallace that she was once a star who sacrificed herself in the struggle to overcome the darkness. When we look at Christmas and Epiphany through this lens, the lens of deep incarnation, naturally, there are other galaxies in the story, players in the story who are light years away from that stable. Because all of creation is wrapped up in Christ's incarnation. I know that I experienced a lot of wonder and awe in the span of time between junior year and Epiphany in this year of grace, 2020. But the one other occasion on which awe has made a room spin around me had to do with rocks. In my time as a Unitarian, I took youth groups on pilgrimage to New England to see the sites of the tradition's history. One of our stops was the chapel at Harvard's Divinity School, where Emerson shocked his mentors with his rejection of Christ's unique divinity. And his closing words to his graduation address, words of fierce desire for that hour to come when that beauty, which ravished the souls of those Eastern men, will come to us and we shall see the world to be the mirror of the soul. She'll see the identity of the law of gravitation with purity of heart, and shall show that the ought, the duty, is one thing, with science, with beauty, and with joy. But I digress a little. What's important to this story is that across the street from the chapel is Harvard's Natural History Museum, where there are thousands of minerals and rocks and gems on display in a curated collection that dates to the late 1700s. Maybe my emotions were running near the surface that first visit, being a tired youth minister responsible for more than a dozen teenagers, but what happened the first time that I inched along those old glass display cases, looking at all those rocks, was nothing shy of actual incarnational epiphany. A revelation of the Creator's heart in a bunch of her creatures. It's funny to think of rocks as creatures. 
It's funny to bless chalk at Epiphany, chalk made of limestone with the words, bless this humble creature, chalk. And yet these things, too, are created parts of the whole story that includes salvation. As I took in the utterly unnecessary beauty, the varieties and the color and the luminosity, as I looked at the shining oil black of meteorites, a thing that no eye was ever likely to see, and yet it existed in loveliness. As I looked at the gold that would never have shone in sunlight except for the work of human hands, as I took in the beauty, the room spun around me. And the next thing I knew, I was weeping in a public place because rocks were just prettier than I could handle. This experience of mine, plus the idea of deep incarnation, it all makes the Magi's gift of gold make more sense to me than all the symbolism of Davidic royalty or the memes about how that would pay for a lot of formula and a lot of diapers. Deep incarnation, again, makes a freshly meaningful place for these creatures, which would otherwise just be props in the story. Without deep incarnational meaning, the impulse to bring Emmanuel, God with us, a hunk of shiny metal that we've decided is precious, it's kind of sweet and silly. Like, for real, God came to dwell with you and proclaim peace and redeem your life, and so you gave him a rock? (laughs) What can we give God that doesn't already belong to God? Nothing at all. What can Christ receive from us that hasn't already been created through him, redeemed in his life and death and resurrection? Nothing. And yet, Because Christ came among us, took on flesh, and became just as dependent on created matter as we are, we want to offer anything we can. All those millennia, we humans had been giving created things back to a God who had no real need of turtle doves or tithes of grain or gifts of oil But now, at Epiphany, God is manifest among us and needs all of it. And so we give everything we can. Here is fresh straw and a manger for your bed. Here is a warm breast and milk for your body. Here is myrrh from the forest, and gold from the mine. This is what's revealed in the Epiphany. And it goes on, humankind offering God what is already God's, because that's how the web of the universe is woven. Here, here, God, here are a couple of fish. Here is my sick child. Here is a colt for you to ride. Here is vinegar for you to drink. And in Christ, the Word made flesh, God actually needs it and can receive it all. 
And so we give. In this depth of incarnation, all of creation becomes Eucharistic. In that sense, we celebrate Epiphany every Sunday, offering God what is God's most especially. We acknowledge and share in it. God, here's bread, and here's wine, gifts from your own creation. Here is gold, or something like it, the treasure of our time offered in gratitude. God, of thine own have we given thee. Make life out of all of this, with us and for us. This is deep incarnation, the revelation that in Christ all of creation is connected, all of it full of meaning, all of it ready to be guide and gift, all of it part of salvation's story. Surrounded as we are by stars to guide us and gifts to give, how then shall we live? What in creation is guiding you now? Where has God set a star to lead you on? And what beautiful, wondrous part of creation is offering itself to you so that you might offer it in turn to God? This epiphany, let us join with creation in wandering and wondering. Join with the Magi in a story of guiding stars and gifting rocks, in a story where duty is woven fine with science and beauty and joy. Let all of creation rejoice. <laughs>